All right, let's go ahead and get started. So I would love to hear from you, not the conversation that you're happening right now, but the question I'm about to ask. Um, I, I would love to hear from, from, uh, from you guys, what did you answer to that question? Where would you take this group on a tour to give them a preview of the kingdom, to show them the reality of Christ? Sure, yes, absolutely. Um, I was actually just mumbling until someone uh, quieted down. So that was, it really wasn't important. Uh, actually, here's the question. I just want to hear from you how you would have answered the question before. Where would you have taken this group on a tour to give them a preview of the kingdom and show them the reality of Christ? So we each mentioned a person that we would want these people in the van to see. We would get them all in a room together, all of our people, and just have them talk to them. Two of us mentioned our mothers, um, and then a couple people who go to our church. All right. I'm, we're going to do some Q&A, but to, I want to set you up for the Q&A by asking you a question. So a preview question before we get to the question. If you could, just take a few moments to discuss with some people around you um, what is a question that somebody should ask tonight, but probably won't? Go ahead and discuss that question, and then we'll ask those questions to Mike. You've discussed some good questions to ask Mike. Now it's your opportunity to go ahead and ask him. So, if I get your attention, please. Any question you want, including the ones you've discussed, Mike will take it from here. Okay, we're starting right here. Yeah, that's a good, that's an excellent question. The, the 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 question is, what do I? In a sense, you're asking, what do I mean by humble, and what do I mean by bold, and what would that look like? You know, there's it's very interesting in the book of Proverbs. There are these two proverbs that stand by side, stand side, stand side by side, that sound an awful lot like a contradiction when you read it for the first time. And here's what they are. Answer a fool according to his folly. Then it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And you're kind of thinking, what? Answer a fool? Don't... And the idea of the proverb is not to give you these ironclad principles, but to call you to reflect on your particular situations and be wise. And so it's saying that sometimes when somebody comes at you with stupid things, saying things, it's best to just say, I know what you're doing, and it's best for me not to say anything. Other times, it's, it's, it's important to be bold. And so knowing exactly when to be bold and when not to be, I think is very critical. But when I'm thinking about arrogant, I'm thinking about people who become obnoxious in the way they defend the truth. And they're obnoxious, and so it's not the truth that offends, it's the attitude that just seems so arrogant. So, but you're also very right when, when you say, sometimes if we are just bold, we will be perceived as arrogant. You're absolutely correct. And so knowing when it really is arrogance and when it is no just gently speaking the truth is very important too. So I think there's always a lot of wisdom But what I'm saying is that boldness without humility can just so turn people off. And humility without boldness is so wimpy, and there's no sense of truth. 
My dad used a great illustration. He was a <clears throat> chemistry teacher, and he said, um, and I hope I get this right because chemistry wasn't my best subject, but he said, hydrogen by itself is destructive. They used hydrogen gas in the First World War to burn out the lungs of people. Remember that? They used that hydrogen gas. They sprayed it out. People breathed it in. It was destructive, and it, be, it became an international incident. So hydrogen by itself is destructive. Now, oxygen, if I'm, no, hold on here. What's that? Chlorine. Chlorine is destructive. Sorry, chlorine gas is destructive. That's my wife. She's heard me use this illustration, and she's helping me my bad, my bad chemistry here. Is it chlorine? Anyway, I'm going to get there. Something's destructive. And something else <laughs> is what? Sodium, I'm being told. Believe me, it's going to work. It be, it apparently, if you put this in water, will fizz around on the surface and then disappear. It's useless. One is destructive, one is useless. He says, and this is why I'm really now being... When you put these two together, you get salt. And what he said was, truth by itself is like chlorine. It can be destructive. And love without truth can be like that superficial sodium going around on the surface. Put them together. Truth in love can become a very powerful thing. It can become a useful salt, which is such a good thing. And so I'm, what I'm thinking about is people who, the way they treat the, the they're, they're, you know, for example, God hates used, you know, homosexuals. And just using the most vile language and the most the terrible ways of saying that rather than loving people. And I think that there's a way to speak the truth in love. And I'm just thinking of, you know, when we lived next door or to a gay couple, I invited them to my inaugural lecture to the chair. I was in the university. I said, I'm going to be talking about creation order. I'm going to be mentioning the gay issue, but you're our friends. We'd like you to come. They said, no problem. They came and they heard what I said. They came to this thing after. And there was a sense. They knew we disagreed with them. So we didn't flinch on the issue, but they also knew we cared about them. And so that's what I'm talking about, where there's a humility. And when I mean humble, I don't mean, I'm not sure if I'm right. Um, I would say there's times when we are humble in that way and say, look, Christ is the truth. My grasp of Christ sometimes is not complete. And so I could need to be humble sometimes and saying, this is the best I can do, but I know Christ. Um, I, I th- I th- I, let me just give a, uh, this is a true story. I was in the middle of Tokyo, Japan one time giving a lecture on something similar to what I talked about today about the church as a preview of the kingdom. And there's a big group there, and I finished, and when I f- finished, a man sitting right at the back, right back there, put up his hand and went on speaking in Japanese for about three or four minutes. My translator said to me, you don't need to know everything he said, but what he just, said, what he just did was rehearsed 
the failure of the church through history in a very articulate way. He just rehearsed all the failures from the Inquisition to the... I mean, he just went through it all. And he says, how can you say that the church is a preview when that has happened in history? And I am usually more bold than I am humble. I got to admit that. And my normal, my normal um, response would have been to defend and would have been to say, you know, there's a Canadian um, journalist who goes around giving speeches. He's an atheist, but he says the Christians are getting a bad rap because everybody's pointing to their failures. He says, but I've been around the world as a famous journalist. He says, when I come to places of tragedy, the first people that are there every single time are Christians. And he goes around giving this speech in Canada, defending Christians that doesn't believe a word of it, but he says they've been given a bad rap. I could have done that. And that's what came to my mind, things like that. And then I remember thinking, no, this is not a time for that. And I said to him, I said, I apologize because we as the church often fail. I said, but I would want to point you to the person of Jesus Christ who never fails. I think it was a two-line answer. That's all I said. And then it went on. I found out two weeks later that that man was a famous art art professor in the University of Tokyo. He'd been around the church for a while looking at it, trying to feel it out, trying to make sense of it. And I found out that two weeks later, he was baptized. And he said at his baptism, if I had defended the church and not pointed him to Christ, he would have walked away and never came back. I just think sometimes humility wins out and just say, I don't know. I just don't know. You know, when we face huge questions, if we say, I got all the answers, and sometimes we can really put people off. So I think it's a matter of wisdom knowing when, how to be bold and not un, you know, never, ever flinching on our commitment to Jesus Christ. Never flinching on our commitment to the Scriptures as the Word of God, but knowing how to point to it, how to defend it, where, when, to be, when, when and how to do it in humility and what boldness would look like with humility. I think, in, in essence, the question you're asking is probably one of the biggest questions of the younger generation that they're going to have to face in a politically correct world. They're going to have to learn how to be so bold with such humility. And that will be attractive. Appreciate the questions. That's right. Um, she's saying, for the, the tape, she's just saying that sometimes we're accused of being hypocritical and we're not. Sometimes we're accused of being hypocritical and we are. We ask God, show us if we are so we can be repentant. And even when there is false slander, think of First Peter. First Peter says, when you're slandered falsely, live such good lives before them that they start to see that they're, and become ashamed of what they're saying. He doesn't say, you know, go back at them with such force. And so he says, live in such a way that it makes them feel ashamed of making these accusations when they know they're not true. Yes, sir. <clears throat> yeah. You know... <clears throat> The guy that I did my doctoral dissertation on that I learned so much from used to be asked a question when he was in India. They said to him, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the coming of the kingdom? And his answer was, neither. I believe in the resurrection. 
I used to think that was a cop-out. I still don't like it. But I know what he was saying. He was saying, I don't know what God's going to do with our witness, but what I do know is the resurrection has taken place and the kingdom will come one day. And I do know that the kingdom, until that kingdom comes, the church is called a witness. And if the church is faithful, wonderful. If it's not faithful, it will be judged. But the kingdom still will come. It's all in God's hands. And so there's a sense in which he said, I don't want to get worked up in terms of what my calling, you know, I don't want to get so worked up and start making the mission my job. I want to make sure that I recognize it's God's. So I appreciate what he said, but I still think you can, ta- you can answer those questions. And I still think that sometimes you can be very discouraged. I remember in 1980, it was about late 80s, it's the only time in my life I ever came to the point of having questions about my faith. And they weren't even that big. But they were deep questions about the church. I was taking a doctoral seminar in the church. Started with the Bible. We went through looking at the church and church history all the way through, looking at the main authors. And I remember thinking, I was a church planter and pastor at the time. I remember thinking, my goodness, where do I see a church the way Paul describes it? And I was thinking, my church isn't like that. Where is there a church like that? And I started to become so discouraged about this. And what I did is, as I was, my, my discouragement did a number of things for me. They started causing me to become hypercritical of the Western church. And I was starting to spiral into this hypercriticism of the church. And my students, because what happened was I left and became a young professor at a university, I started drawing my students into this until a student called me on it. Actually, he would later become my doctoral student and now a co-author of a book we're writing. But he called me on this and he said, you know what you're doing? You are causing us to see all the flaws of the church and to miss what God is doing. And you're making us all sort of wanting to give up on the church and to walk away from it. And it hit me. That's that's exactly what I was doing. I personally didn't have any temptation to walk away from the church. I knew that my call was to give everything I had, and I assumed they would too. But I started realizing they were not as strongly committed and what that could do. And what I started realizing at that point was, yes, there's a lot of failure in the church, but you know what? God uses little acts of obedience. And I, I love an image I've seen a piece of art one time with an image of a cracked jar. And there's light inside the jar, and it's coming through the cracks in the jar. And the imagery there is beautiful because it describes the way our cracked and broken lives often can be the place in which light comes. comes. And so I could give many stories. Um, I'll, I'll just tell a story to, to now illustrate what I want to say. We, in our church back in Vancouver, where I was a preaching pastor up until... December of last year, we had a lot of uh, Chinese students and professors coming to our church. We're close to university. They liked the preaching, so they'd come. Many of them just came to learn English. And one atheist came. Uh, many did, actually. He was a professor. He was there for a year-long sabbatical. He was a well-known economics professor, and he came just to hear me preach and to listen to English, and he would keep coming. And he started reading drama scripture. He'd ask me questions every week. He kept coming. He kept, I gave him a book on globalization that edited because he's an economist and he read it. We discussed it. We had all this rich conversation going for a year. At the end of it, this man, it's really a funny story. 
he was sitting, he used to sit over here, and I was so aware of him when I was preaching. And he turns to a, another professor who's a Christian, a Korean, he says, I want to take the Lord's Supper. And our Korean brother says, you can't. He says, why not? He says, because you're not a Christian. Are you? I don't know. <laughs> I just want to take the Lord's Supper. I mean, these are two brilliant PhDs going at it. <laughs> And he, said, and he finally, and he says, and he kept saying, you can't. You've got to go to the, you can't. He said, but I want to take it. And they, I don't know what he actually did. But they went by him. Well, a week later, he confessed Christ. And what was so interesting was when he left, he stood up to say, I want to tell you why I've come to Christ. And I was saying, oh, he's going to talk about all these conversations he had with me and all the wisdom and stuff, everything. I didn't even mention any of that. He says, what I did is I came to this church and you guys claimed to be a foretaste of the kingdom. And he says, I experienced this, gone from my wife and my child for a year. And he described it. And I remember, just to, just to put feet in that, I remember an older Dutch lady coming up to me one time halfway through the year and she said to me, I'm having Professor so-and-so over for dinner and I don't know what to do. She says, he's so smart and I'm so dumb. I don't know what to say. I don't have a good education. He has so many, what do I say to him? And I said, Here's what you do. Make him the best meal he's ever had and love him. She says, I can do that. And she apparently, a lot of people did that. And when he stood up at the end, he says, I've been loved by this community. Now, I'll tell you, I could be really critical of this community. I know its faults inside and out. I know how they fail at almost at all of these things. <laughs> I know of a community that is deeply broken, and sometimes you wonder, do they believe in the power of the gospel? But here's a community that in the brokenness of their lives, there was still something of the Spirit at work that pointed to Christ. And I think that that's what we've got to, what we've got to believe, that the church is the place where God is at work. And even though it is true that for the last 30 years, the church has been shrinking like crazy in the West at an incredible rate. And it's also true that the church has been growing like crazy in other parts of the world, that even in the Western churches, I'm in Vancouver, where it is one of the most de-Christianized places you have ever seen in your life. It is, we're, we're, we have reached European levels. And sometimes the, the church, you just wonder at the weakness of the church, and you feel it, and you think, okay, I don't know what God's doing here. All I know is I have to use the gifts God has given me to nurture and build up the church to be a faithful witness. Because in the end, he's not going to say, did you solve the problems in Vancouver? Did you make sure the church was a faithful witness? No, he's, God's going to say, were you faithful in using your gifts to nurture this community? And did you struggle and strive towards that and not letting a pessimism that is struggling over the failure of the church, or, and this is the other problem, this can be an American issue, being optimistic about the church, when in ma matter of fact, it's a little more superficial than you think it is. And I think sometimes our, super, our optimism and our pessimism can be deadly. And that's why I think Newbegin is saying, I believe in the resurrection. I, says, I, I, I think that what we need is a sense that this is our calling, this is where we're placed. This is the situation we're in. These are the gifts God has given me. And I'm going to struggle and seek the kingdom of God with all my might and let God do his work through me. Is that? Yeah, so basically it's my job to be faithful to God and obey him and work with what his will is in my life and let him worry about being the part 
Yeah, yes, but, but also, but, be, but doing that in community. In other words, struggling to use your gifts to build up a communal witness because it's very, very easy to back off. Yes, I think that's it, that, that, that we're called to be faithful. And I, 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 the image I always want to use comes from that wonderfully brilliant movie, What About Bob? <laughs> baby Steps. That we need to take baby steps in the gospel. And that if we think we're, we, we we're going to run, we're probably going to trip. Just taking baby steps. And if you keep taking baby steps in the gospel, you're going to go a long way. And so I think we, you know, I've been in so many settings with pastors, teachers, and so forth, where they, it can be very discouraging by the end where you see what the culture, cultural idolatry is doing, the, the, I, the call that the Bible gives us. And in the end, I say, that's not to leave us discouraged. It's to... It's to help us see what the kingdom is calling us to so we can move towards it and struggle towards it and do so with repentance and joy, both. Repentance and joy. Yes. I, I think I could formulate a question for you. How, uh, uh, let me, let, uh, here, here's what I'm hearing the question. I'm hearing you ask, if, is it true, first of all, it's kind of a twofold question. Is it true that if we have the true story, that all other stories are wrong. And if that's true, how do you do that? That's hard to do. How do you do that in such a way that you're not offensive? Would that be kind of gather? I don't, I don't offense. Yeah, Bible, right, right, yeah. I, the first thing is, and I, I am quite willing to be critiqued on this at this point and realize that I might be imbalanced. But the first thing here I want to say is this, is that, the stories of our culture are not just wrong. There's much good in the American story. There's much good in the Western story. There's much good in the Brazilian story. There's much good in the European story, in the Chinese story, because of God's common grace, His love for His creation. He won't let it go. And so there is much good that we must embrace. And so there's a sense in which you probably are hearing me just hammering the idolatry. And if you said that to me, I'd say, you're right. And I'd say, yes, I'm a little imbalanced, but I'm making a strategic move here. And my strategic move was illustrated by a proverb that a, or African gave me once. He said to me, he said, when there's a fat man sitting on a teeter-totter, it's necessary to jump very hard on the other side. <laughs> and what he was saying is that and what he's saying is that Americans and the West in general have a pretty good opinion of their culture. They know the good things of their culture, and they're quite willing to say so. And so I think what we need to say is no, there's a lot of idolatry. But we have to be careful to realize, that, and I find myself in other parts of the world by saying, I have to jump on the other side. Your culture is pretty good, you know. You've got a lot of good things. And so it's not saying everything in your story is wrong. It's saying there's a lot of good in the, in, in the American story as it's taken up the Western story. And uh, so there's a lot of good in it. That's the first thing. But in the end, you are right. We have to present it as a different alternative story that says you're living in idolatry. And how to do that becomes the most 
the most becomes so that demands wisdom, sensitivity, love. And that's why I think evangelism should be done only in the context of close relationships where people know you love them. And when you're telling them this, you're saying it in love. And then again, how you say it so that they hear good news. Because again, Jesus said good news. And that good news really was good news, but it was very offensive at the same time, both. On the one hand, it demanded repentance. On the other hand, it was really good news. And How do you say this is really good news and be offended? So, yes, and here's what even, I'll add to what you're saying, what you, your question. Here's what even makes it more difficult in our era, and that is that tolerance has become one of our major idols. Canada, even more than the U.S., that is our, one of our Trinitarian gods, is tolerance. We are so tolerant. And to say anything against anybody's views on anything is seen as some kind of ism. And so it's seen as being arrogant and so on. It goes back to your question. Sometimes you're arrogant when you're not. You're just saying, I just don't agree with you and I love you, but I don't agree with you. So knowing, so it becomes hard when we, let's not say the world out there is saturated with tolerance. Let's say we're part of this creation, this culture, and we too feel this tolerance want to be tolerant. And so we feel the agony of it, but God calls us to be faithful anyway and somehow to be bold in our making known Christ, but doing it wisely, sensitively, and lovingly. Is that somewhat helpful? That's right. There's going to be a conflict between stories. But here's another way to come at it. This would be, this would take me way too much time. But another way to come at it is to say, you know, the things in your story that have become most idolatrous, take them and put them in the biblical story and they find their rightful place. Saying, okay, one of the major idols in the United States is freedom. I can do whatever I want. And we see this in so many areas. Well, freedom is what God intended for humanity. And the freedom that is taken up in the American dream is totally idolatrous, but true freedom can find its rightful place in the Bible. I could say the same thing about nationalism and patriotism, a good thing that finds its rightful place in the Bible. In other words, another way of coming at it, instead of saying, boy, are you wrong on those idols, but saying, you know what? You know what an idol is? It's a good part of creation that we've recognized as good, and we've started to orient our lives around it, but you know, that doesn't work too well. That ends up serving the wrong God. I mean, I wouldn't put it that way, but that ends up distorting things. I can think, for example, of a a, a conversation I had one time with a guy in the plane. He just said, boy, our education system is terrible. I said, yeah, I know what you mean. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a professor, and boy, it's bad news. (laughs) And he says, oh, and he says, yeah, we put our daughter in school, and this is what's happening. I said, I know. And I started, and I, and I actually was going to a conference speaking on education. So I started talking about it, and I started saying, yeah, you know, here's where it's all messed up and so on. And he's going, oh, yeah, it is. And about three or four hours into it, he says, where are you getting all this? And I said, well, I said, I believe that education is serving the wrong God. He says, what do you mean? And I said, well, I think it's serving the God right now of consumerism that is trying to orient our education to get good jobs. And I said, you serve that God, it's going to fail. He says, yeah, tell me more. I started talking to him. And he says, and what do you think is the right God? And I said, well, the person of Christ who created education to be good. Really? And we had a long conversation. He never converted as far as I know, but he did help me get out of the Heathrow airport. 
on the wrong side of the road, and that was a big thing. But I, th- but I remember thinking it was taking his bad news, that he knew was bad news, and running with it, or taking with other people's good news and running with it, and then trying to show its proper place in the biblical story. Yes. To repeat that long question, <laughs> Jolene is asking about the unity of the church. And in a sense, what I'm hearing the question is, what does true ecumenicity look like? What does it really mean to be one church, and how do you live into that reality? Let me, would that kind of summarize you, because you're painting a, a lot of pictures and illustrations of how you struggle with that, and how do you deal, what, what does true ecumenicity look like? If you, I like that word. Some people are afraid of it. But what is, how do you live as one body when there's such disagreement? on so many things. And I think the first thing is to say that Jesus was pretty serious about unity because he prays it in John 17. And he says, he prays to the Father that he would make his disciples one. And he repeats this twice. He says, so that the world may know that you have sent me. So unity was closely tied to witness. And the reason it was so closely tied to witness was because he was to be the center of this new humankind. And if this new humankind just became a bunch of fragmented religious groups, it wouldn't look like the new humankind. It would look like a bunch of fragmented religious groups. And so his concern was that the people of God would be one. So I think the first thing is to affirm that, something that I know you believe, but just to start there, that this is important. But then the huge question is, what in the world does that look like? Because right now we're living in a world with 36,000 denominations, and 25,000 of them are in the United States. So in other words, the majority of them are in the United States. How do you live with this marvelous capitalist system that has now become part of putting out your own, you know, putting out your own uh, card and putting out your own plaque to come to our church and starting? How do you live as one? And I think the two questions that I used to get most often <laughs> in my teaching career was how do you live in a consumer society and how do you be one? And I found those two the most vexing questions. How do you live as one body? And here's what I think, here's what I think, here's where I would be right now in answering. I'd say number one, we got to start where we are. We can't start back in the early church when the church is one. We've got to start now where there's 36,000 denominations. That's the reality of our world. We're living in Phoenix and maybe 24,000 of them are right here. So the starting point is recognizing the the reality in which we live. And the second thing is then to say, okay, what steps can be taken? And how do you take them? That's the next question. How do you take them? And it seems to me that wisdom says you start building bridges to people who are closest to you. I mean, I think it would be the dumbest idea to say, take someone, I'm sure he doesn't even believe the gospel. Let's be one. I mean, that's not the best way to do it. I mean, to start building bridges. And I think what is, what ability, the ability that God has given to us to be, and maybe God will open up possibilities. This church comes along. This church comes along. And, and there's possibilities that open up. But it seems to me true ecumenicity in the end is not wishy-washy tolerance. It's really trying to be the new humankind around Christ which is willing to live together in mutual critique. 
like any good marriage. Any good marriage, will you'll be critiqued by your spouse and loved by your spouse. And there needs to be, I think, mutual enrichment. And I'm convinced that every denomination and every confessional tradition has seized hold of something in Scripture and missed a whole lot more. I don't think there's any tradition, except mine, but there's no... <laughs> I don't think there's any tradition that's got hold of all of Scripture. I think all of us, because human traditions are, can, only take, can only take in so much... And so, therefore, we all need to be critiqued. We all need to be enriched. We all need to be broadened. And probably the very things I'm missing are what my brother and sister down the road have picked up. And they're missing a lot of what I see. And I think that what can happen in true ecumenicity when there's humility is there can be a growing enrichment in the gospel. And I see that happening in Phoenix in ways that I don't see many other places where there truly is a commitment to being one and listening to one another and then examining it by the Scriptures. So I think a true ecumenicity will not be tolerant in the negative humanistic sense of the word, but will love and struggle together towards truth in ways, in best ways you can do that, but always in the context of personal relationships. Um, yeah. I don't, have, I don't think that's easy. And I think that often, I think you and many of us here have a lot of paths open for struggling towards ecumenicity. And, boy, it's hard sometimes to love people that so disagree with you, but that's where sometimes you know when to speak, when not to. I see one, two, three. We'll go in that order. Okay, next question. <laughs> okay, you've, you've, you've pointed to really two different issues. One with the, uh, what's called the ban in the book of Joshua, the destruction of the Canaanites. And then the second one talking about homosexuality. And in, in many senses, the way you came at the question, there were two different questions being asked. And I think what's really important about that question is these are two of the major issues that you will hear unbelievers ask about. I'm finding that more and more the question of Joshua and the question of homosexuality are the burning issues among a lot of unbelievers on the university campus and why they would just dismiss Christianity. And so we've got to have answers for these things. We've got to know how to answer with, with love and kindness but know what we're talking about. And I think, the, that's what, but I'm going to answer both of them, starting with jo- Joshua and then go to the homosexual issue. I think the first thing in Joshua is, the first thing to say is if my answer makes you go, oh, good, I can explain that now nice and easy, then you haven't heard me. We better feel the pain of what happened then. I think God would have us feel that pain. And I think that we don't just say, oh, as I'm going to give an explanation, that explains it. Okay, now we understand it. Let's move on. We better feel the, in, we better feel the pain of what took place there. But here's how I would talk about Joshua. The first thing, is that the book of, in the book of Joshua, the question, it, this is not ethnocentric, not, not ethnic cleansing. It's often described by unbelievers as ethnic cleansing. That's not what it is. What is happening in the book of Joshua is God bringing judgment through his people. What we read in, the book, in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, I'm going to give you the land of the Amorites, but not yet. The reason is that the sin of the Amorites has not reached full measure. 
with the assumption that when it does, then I'm going to give you that land and I'm going to bring judgment on them. And so the real question about the book of Joshua is, does God have the right to judge? And judgment is a painful thing. It's God's judgment in the book of Isaiah, if I remember chapter 11, is called his strange work. And it's called his strange work because he'd probably rather not do it. In other words, he didn't do, he doesn't do that because he delights in judging. That would, he wouldn't have done that with there's no sin. He does that because he loves his creation so much and will destroy it. And so I think the, the sin will destroy it. So he must judge sin before it destroys the creation. So the question is God's judgment. And I think there's a lot of people that don't like judgment because it's put in such a negative context. And um, let me, but I used, to, I used two illustrations because I used to do a lot of ma- uh, marriage counseling and then weddings with unbelieving, unbelievers who wanted to come to our church. I'd say, and I'd say, okay, if you come three times, listen to me, talk to you about the gospel for three times, then I'll give you a civil ceremony if you still don't believe it. It gave me an opportunity. And they would always balk at God's judgment. And I would, give, I would use two examples. I used an example one time of a, of a um, true story of an African missionary who, uh, whose child was in a crib, and uh, he walks in, and the child is lifeless, and he realizes with horror that that child has just been killed by a snake. And he looks up and he sees a snake sunbathing, <laughs> as it were, sitting in the sun on the windowsill. I said, what do you think that father's going to do to that thing that just destroyed his, what he loved so much? Well, he's going to destroy it. And God's judgment is his hatred of what is destroying his good world. It's not his hatred of humanity. It's his hatred of what is destroying his world. And if people refuse to be separated from it in repentance, they are judged too. So knowing, we sometimes tone down the gravity of sin, and therefore God's judgment is played down. A second thing, and this was a dirty move, but I did it. I would say to the husband, or sorry, the the man who's going to be married to his to, to the woman, I'd say to him, and he'd always be very much in love with his wife sitting there holding hands, I'd say to him, what would happen if somebody ravaged your wife and raped her? And then he was caught, and then he came before a judge, and the judge says, you know what, I'm going to let you go, because I'm a nice guy. I said, what do you think you'd do? They all rise up and want, I'll tell you what I'd do. Oh, so you would like some justice, would you? And so immediately when you appeal to their image of God and justice, they can begin to understand judgment. And so that's the first thing. I'd like to say a lot more, but does God have a right to judge? Because God is going to judge his own people too, isn't he? He's going to use Assyria as the rod of his anger to judge his people. I think a second thing is to know where we're at in the story and what God is doing. What God is doing in that story is giving them the land, and the picture is this is going to be the rest, that is where God is going to restore the shalom, and this place is going to be the place where God's people will be a preview of the kingdom. And so he makes clear idolatry and, judge, idolatry and sin have to be removed so that Israel is not polluted by it. The book of Judges comes on the heels of Joshua, and they don't get rid of the idolatry as they were told to in Joshua. And so God says in chapter 2, okay, you're going to live with it and look and see, you're going to see what it does to you. And it ends up destroying them. So first of all, they're, they're going to get rid of idolatry. A third thing 
is that not every nation was to be destroyed. I think if I remember right, Deuteronomy says seven of the nations, the most powerful and the most wicked. The rest were to be invited to become part of the covenant. And so there's only those who were the most wicked and whose sin had reached full measure that God is bringing judgment and going to give them the land. So that you'd want to explain it in light of the story. I'm not saying people are going to accept that. But that's what as Christians we're saying, this is what's going on, and we believe that God is a holy God and has every right to judge because of the gravity of sin. And he has every right to destroy the whole creation if he wanted to but it's his mercy that he hasn't. But if we understand that this is part of a long story and don't just focus on this one thing, then you can start to talk about it in those things. We actually address that in drama of Scripture. Give those three or four, and there's a few more things. But the homosexuality issue is a different one. And I, I think this is a tough one. And I think, first of all, that the reason, we st- the reason Christians need to take a stand on that is because... This is, we're talking about God's created order. We're not talking about preference here. We're talking about the way God has created humanity and created the world. And if, and the, if God has, as I believe, created man as male and female, and it's male and female in a lifelong relationship, then homosexuality, but so is um, serial, you know, serial divorce and re, you know, remarriage. Any distortion of God's intention is going to be destructive. But I think the problem is, is that, is that we have not loved our homosexual neighbors. And I think that's the biggest problem, that, we have, that we've often been very, that, that, you know, and it was hard when we moved in next, for me, when we moved in next door to a gay couple. I had to, I had to get over some issues. But my wife was very good at it. She, she, she was able to embrace them very quickly and lovingly. And I think that as I told you that story, they knew where we stood and there was no problem because they heard what we were saying, but they hadn't accepted the gospel, but we could still love them. And I think part of the problem is not so much that Christians take a stand on this issue as much as the way they take a stand without, being, without a heart of love for anybody. And I remember a good friend of mine teaches for us here at MTC. Uh, he was asked to give a paper on, on homosexuality a number of years ago, and he starts with, with, he started with this statement. He says, the starting point for looking at this issue is every single one of us sitting here are deeply broken people sexually. Every one of us. And we're all broken in different ways. And when we start with that acknowledgement of how, all, of how broken we are sexually, then we're ready to say, there's these, many, there's these many ways that people are broken sexually. Then we're not saying, you, I've got it together, but you got the problem. Then you're recognizing there's brokenness all over the place. And the brokenness is when we depart from God's design. So, I mean, I, I think, again, it's part of it is the tone and the way we love people as we talk about those things. So, I'm sure it's not fully satisfying for you. It's the best I can do in five minutes. So there's two more. There's one back here. There's two here. Okay, and there's one behind you, but I'll start with you. Go ahead. I got two questions. That's it? Okay, yes. The answer is simple, but the answer is pretty simple, is that Jesus says and Paul says that the new humanity will find its unity in Jesus Christ. So true ecumenicity is not many religions coming around, say, justice and peace, but it's a new humanity coming around Christ. I mean, I, I could spell out that more, but I do think I think that often there's there's a naivety with those coexist stickers 
that don't realize that religions are fundamentally different ways of viewing the world. And that when they say, let's unite around justice and peace, the question is, what do you mean by justice? The Christian means something different by justice than the Muslim. So whose justice are we going to revolve around? And so I think, I think that sometimes Muslims have been wiser here than Christians when they've said, you know, you Christians have fallen into the tolerance attitude of the West. And when you've done so, you don't realize that you ought to be fundamentally different than Western humanists and us and everybody else. And then our attitude should be back. You're right. But your way of dealing with difference is different than the Christian should be. But I think that for ecumenicity, Paul makes it clear, Ephesians 1.10, for example, that this new humanity that God is beginning to create is centered in the person of Jesus Christ, and that becomes the fundamental criterion. There's one person behind you. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. I think the question I'm hearing, if I had to repeat the other one, is, is service and struggling towards certain issues of justice a good way to pursue ecumenicity? That's what I'm hearing you say. And I think the answer is yes, but that shouldn't be the end of it. Um, In the early part of the 20th century, when the ecumenical movement started that would later become liberal, it wasn't when it started, all of it, it wasn't anyway, they basically said that. They said, you know, we can unite on a lot of issues of, of serving our culture where we can't unite in other things. And so they made up three groups. One was... Uh, what they called faith and order, where we'd struggle together with our doctrinal differences. The other was called work and service, where we'd try to unite around serving together. And the other one was mission, where we'd be involved in cross-cultural missions. And I think that there's something to be said for that, but the problem with that is that it usually will lead to more and should lead to more. And so uh, the two, of the mo- for me, the most exciting movements of unity I've seen is one is here in Surge, and the other was a, a movement in Hamilton where I was a pastor that was called um, um, True City. And what they started realizing is they'd be united together to be one and to love the city. They started really realizing it was leading to more than service. It was leading to worship together. It was leading to prayer together. It was leading to many different things together. And so I think it... Uh, that ought to happen. And it, it is it's really good for us to have difference because we're, we, we like to be with people that are the same as us. But I remember there was this one African preacher, and boy, was this guy a preacher. He was a Pentecostal preacher, and he was explosive. And he came into our church, and he was speaking to this very well-educated, well-heeled Dutch people that don't know, that don't know they have bodies or emotions. They just go like this, and they take everything in with their mind. And he came on, he was preaching. They were listening to him. And a lady came up to her senior pastor and said, I felt like sometimes he was being, he was being held by the devil. And, and our pastor says, I, I understand why you feel that way. He says, but you know he loves Christ, right? She says, oh, I know that, but it was just... I, I, and and he, she just couldn't get over this. But what happened was gradually she was expanded to be able to see that this is a marvelous way to express your faith. It's just very different than Dutch people who are probably the least physical, emotional people in the world along with the Germans. Forgive me, Dutch and Germans. But I've lived among the Dutch so much. And, I, and, and probably the Africans are those 
who have, are far more liberated in a proper way with their emotions in their body, and there couldn't have been more difference. But this was good for our congregation to have this African brother come and preach. It was really good for our congregation. So I think that ecumenicity can be a very good thing, and it can expand our view of the gospel. Did you say thanks to Mike? 